You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 16. And if you don't have a Bible, would you please grab those Bibles in the seats in front of you? And if you're new to Ascend, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you're just exploring the, the claims of Christianity, I'm so glad. And, and, and I know for both of those categories, a message like I'm about to preach might be a little overwhelming. In fact, I hear from time to time that people are, that are new to our church or are new to Christianity walk away from sermons or Bible studies or small groups saying, I feel like I'm a child. I feel like everybody else knows more than I do. But listen, that's not something to be shamed about. In fact, the Bible uses illustrations like a child and a young person and an adult and a father to be able to describe that the Christian life is a process of maturing. And, you know, we're going to get together for the holidays and we're going to see young people in our family. And what do we typically do as old people? You've grown so much. And the reason for that is perspective. You know, as a young person, if you're just looking in the mirror on a daily basis, you don't see that change. I just looked in the mirror in between services and I'm like, wow, you're old. <laughs> perspective allows us to see things, I think, from the way God sees them when it comes to our Christian walk. And listen, if you are a child in the faith, if this this morning is overwhelming, if small groups and Bible studies seem like everybody else knows more than you, stick with it. Because just as a child eats their vegetables, just as a young person exercises and takes care of their body, those end up revealing growth, and that will be the same for you. Because I'm going to put my cards on the table. And for those of you who are fundies, like I was raised, these cards are rook cards. Only a couple of you probably understand that. But the rest of you, these are just regular cards. My cards on the table is we gather together every week. We open God's word. We listen to podcasts that focus on Christianity for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that is to better understand God. And from that perspective, if we're comparing ourselves with what God knows, we are all children. So, this chapter, though, is a wowza. Let me read it to you, and you'll see what I mean. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 1. If you grabbed one of those Bibles, it's page 1037. The, uh, the apostle John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So... The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, listen to this, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, listen to this, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, if it couldn't get more weird, it does, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. <laughs> and all God's people said, wowza. I would submit to you, however, that the approach that many Christians take that results in them reading a chapter like this saying, well, God will work it all out in the end, and then rushes to the book of John or Genesis is actually an unfortunate response to a chapter like this. It actually tells us something about the value that you place on God and his word because I submit to you that God expects us to study, to understand, and apply Revelation 16 just as he does those other passages with which you are more familiar and comfortable and so my goal this morning is to unpack this in a faithful way that I think reflects the interpretive method of Jesus and the authors of Scripture. But I'll say at the onset, I'm going to land very differently than some of you and very differently than some of the pastors and authors that you followed. But my request of you is stick with me, engage, and I hope we will come out of this focused on what I think John's focus is and you'll see that as we unpack it together. There's only two points to this sermon, but the big idea is in your notes, and that's this. The bulls provide an opportunity to evaluate how you view God 
in the reality of your relationship with him. There's only two perspectives, and this will shape your relationship and the reality of it with him. First, there's the perspective of starting with God. The perspective of starting with God. And John provides that to us once again in the seven bowls. He does that by the opening phrase that says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple. John does not identify the individual and the one who's giving the command, but he does recognize its source. It says this, then I heard a loud voice, what does it say, from the temple. I submit to you, as I've been developing this throughout reading, and studying and preaching the first 15 chapters as well as the rest of scripture that I don't think John is referring to a literal temple here. I don't think he's describing a physical building, although if you've studied the Bible, that's where our minds usually are drawn. When you read the temple, we likely go back to the Old Testament and we'll refer to maybe the tabernacle. Or maybe we'll refer to the building that, that uh, Solomon built and that Herod then reconstructed before Jesus' day. And we think about a physical structure in a specific location. But if we trace the theme of temple and in the Bible, we realize the point of the temple in the story is this, God dwelling with his people. In fact, in a sense, the Garden of Eden is referred to as a temple. In a sense, the tabernacle is referred to as a temple. Clearly, we have the physical building in Jerusalem referred to as a temple. But then listen to this. Revelation, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3.16 refers to you and me as Christ followers and us as a local church as the temple. So what's the point? The point is from the story that the temple refers to the dwelling place of God. So what this is saying, as John is using this phrase, is the command is coming from God. So it draws our attention to God. But then the details that John chooses to describe these bowls are interesting. Look what it says the first bowl is. The first bowl was pulled, poured out onto the earth and there were harmful, painful sores. Interesting. The second bowl is poured out into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, so the thick, dark blood of a dead body. And then verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs, the fresh water, and they became blood. So now, immediately we might be tempted to wonder, okay, what would the entire sea system look like if it was literally dark blood of a corpse, but that's not, I don't think, the point John is making in providing these details. We might think, what would that look like for all of the fresh water in the world to be turned to blood and want to know how would society survive? But I don't think that's the point of the details John's providing. We might look at the, 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 the first one and see what would the painful sores look like and is every human being going to have sores on them? I don't think that's the point of the details John provides. Do you remember any time in the Old Testament, any story when God poured out sores on people groups, turned water into blood? Exodus. I think that's the point 
that John is making in using these details that he's prescribing. It's not the literal fulfillment of this. It's the literal point that he's teaching, and that is God is going to judge. The God of the literal historical events of the plagues in the Old Testament is going to do this spiritually on all of creation. Now, there are godly people who believe this is literal. I talked to several of them after first service. I read the commentaries. I have pastors that are on my Mount Rushmore of influences in my life who believe these are literal fulfillments. And John is describing a sea that will literally turn into physical dead corpse blood. But listen to what Tom Schreiner says if that's the approach we take in reading Revelation. He says here, the literal plagues of Egypt, uh, this is Jim Hamilton's quote, and then here symbolically are demonstrating the futility of false gods. That was the point with the literal plagues in Egypt. It's the point in John's symbolic description here in Revelation is that the gods of this earth, the gods that Satan has constructed, are futile in comparison with God Almighty. I think that's the point. And then this is what Tom Schreiner says, and we'll see this when we get to the sixth bowl that's poured out, the river Euphrates and Armageddon. We're reminded, Tom Schreiner writes, that literal readings of the text go astray and stumble over matters that are of no concern to John. And man, have I seen this when I've studied it for myself. Is that from the opening pages, if we're trying to picture Jesus as literally with a white robe and a golden sash and and hair of white and a sword coming out of our mouth, and we want to make that literal, we, we miss the point that John is communicating. John wants us not to ask all the questions about, is this, a, is this a long sword? Is it a short sword? Is it, how sharp is it? Would it cut me if I held it? That's not the point. John is moving us beyond the symbolic details to literal truths. And I think if we force literal on the text, and I know I'm saying that strongly, I might be wrong about this, but I think, especially when we get to unpacking the rest of these bulls, if we, we keep making it literal, there's going to be inconsistencies, and I think we're going to be distracted from the point John is making. The point he's making in the vocabulary and the details that he's describing here is that all gods in the universe are futile compared to God Almighty. He also draws our attention to not just the source being God, not just the Egyptian plagues that revealed God is superior, that God judges, but then look at what he says. Similar to the seals, the trumpets, hear the bulls focus on creation, don't they? Earth, sea, rivers, sun, throne of the beast, rivers, nation, air, all three of these sevens focus on creation. And I think what it's doing is it's drawing our attention to creator God, that he's in authority, that he doesn't miss anything. And we'll see that when it says he remembers Babylon. And it's drawing us through these descriptions, not to details, not to chronology, not to the things we humans want to figure out, but instead to start with God. That God is superior. If we look at history, we see that there are a lot of gods out there, aren't there? 
I mean, just study the plagues, and you see that every one of those plagues corresponded to a god of Egypt. If you look through Greek or Roman history, you see that there's Zeus, there's Apollo, there's Neptune. And so there have been false gods all throughout history, but there are, there are false gods today, aren't there? How about the god of the environment? Mother Earth. How about the god of politics? How about the god of sports? How about the god of social influencers? But you know who the most powerful god is? In this world, just as he's always been, the God of self. The God of self. Because human beings, when they're evaluating God, usually start with the perspective of man. Christians usually start out as we're evaluating God, especially when we look at our life context and then we compare it with what we thought we knew about God, we start out with man. And that's how we get to a place where we're like, well, if that's the God that the Bible says, I'm not going to follow that God. Or how could a loving God fill in the blank? We're starting with the position of man. And what John is doing by the details that he's providing, the source of the bulls, the actual plagues that he describes, and focusing on creation is he's drawing our attention to God. And when that happens, listen, this is the second part of the outline point, it should lead us to respond in worship. And that's what happens here in the text. Look at verse 5. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you're just pulling out a couple of lines, this sounds like a, a, a contradictory God. Look at verse 6, actually. It says, you have given them blood to drink. Doesn't that sound like a contradictory God, especially if you know the Old Testament? And you know that in Genesis 9 and in Leviticus 3, God forbids people from drinking blood. That, that sounds like God is contradicting himself, which, by the way, if we have to read literally everything in Revelation, that's a tough one. Here we see a God that seems to be contradicting himself because it says that he gave these people that he's judging blood to drink. But then look at verse 5. It says, you brought these judgments. doesn't say God allowed these judgments. doesn't say that he was aware that these judgments would happen because he looked forward in the corridors of time. No, it says you brought these judgments. And see, if we are not starting with God, we might read these phrases and really, really have a hard time with it and actually start throwing things back at him rather than saying, Whew, I don't get it, and this is hard, but I'm going to worship. I think that's the point of the details that John is providing. Look at what he says in verse 5. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. I can tell you this. I don't think the angel fully comprehended all of the aspects of what was going on in the scene. Only God does. And yet this angel is looking at all of these things, and he says, Just are you. I'm worshiping. Verse 6, he's seeing people from God's perspective, not from man's perspective. He's saying they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And yes, if you look at history, yes, if you look at society today, yes, we can anticipate in the future there will be literal bloodshed of Christ followers. But I think that's limiting that if that's all we're looking at in this phrase. I think these are people who persecute Christ followers. And we know that all of us will experience that, right? We see in 2 Timothy that all who will live godly, chapter 3, verse 12, will suffer persecution. 
You can write down John 15, 18, and 20. If the world hated me, what's the world going to do to us? It's going to hate us, and that won't always mean that our blood will be shed, but we will be persecuted for Christ. And the angel is seeing humanity as God sees us. And so he concludes, even though this is seemingly harsh, it's what they deserve. And then verse 7, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Friends, I think when we start our perspective of God with God himself, it solves a lot of the contradictions and struggles that we have And at a maximum, it gives us a framework. Here's the framework. I'll have the team put this up on the screen. Many of the apparent contradictions of God are cleared up when we start with God. When we do, the awe and the wonder that results overflows in worship, even with the hard topics. And friends, I I, I submit to you that the older you get, the more hard you realize life is. I know there's young people that have been through horrific circumstances, but the older I get, I'm reminded that the body doesn't respond like it used to. That grandparents and parents don't live forever. That government doesn't always uphold righteousness, and you can go on and on and on. So when we get to these hard topics, I think if we start with God, if we start there, and then we flow to the topics, I think it solves most, if not all, of our apparent contradictions that we see with God. So friends, I submit to you that these first seven verses are John's attempt through his unpacking of the bowls to remind us to start with God. And if we do, God's people will respond in worship. So here's the second perspective in the remaining bowls that I think John is revealing to us. And that is those who start with man. Those who start with man. What what is the purpose of the bowls? I think the purpose of the bowls is to emphasize certainty, severity, and and comprehensiveness of God's wrathful judgment. Let me me just... Let me just reveal to you what I think the the point of the sevens is in the book of Revelation. The team's going to put an image up on the screen of the seals and the the trumpets. Not this one yet. I know I'm out of of order. That's on me. This. This is what I think the point of Revelation is. I think Revelation is revealing from chapter 4 on to 22, the period of time that is between Jesus' resurrection and the second coming, and he's revealing that through seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, the, the weakness of this image is that I'm not proposing to you that one corresponds to one corresponds to one. I'm not saying that. Each one of the sevens emphasizes something different with God's character and something different with his judgments and his plan. This is actually going to shape where I'm leaning and probably going to land when it comes to the millennial reign. And the the, the point with this is that as you start to actually look at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, you start to see, wow, there's a lot of correspondence. Wow, he's talking about creation and humans. And yes, he's giving more emphasis. Yes, some of it looks more severe. And I know there's God the man. In fact, Tom Schreiner, I, I love him. He is an amazing professor at Southern. 
And I agree with so much from his commentary, but he thinks the bulls are the the last period of history and the the wrath of God being poured out emphatically on creation. I don't see that. But maybe he's right. I don't know. But I think as I've been working through this, I think this actually aligns what John is doing with the sevens. And so when we get to the bulls, what he's doing is he's showing us once again that period of time from Jesus' resurrection to the second coming when he sets up his eternal kingdom so that we who are in the middle of that time period can look at the world around us and instead of trying to figure out, is this the time, which I don't believe there's seven years of tribulation. Oh, I hope you don't leave the church over that. But the point is, is that no matter how hard it gets, no matter how long he seems to delay, he's wanting us to remember God. He's wanting us to remember he's in control. He's wanting us to remember he remembers. He's wanting us to remember the epicenter of this whole thing is Christ. That's Revelation eleven fifteen. I believe that's the epicenter of the book of Revelation. That's the point that John is drawing to in Revelation eleven fifteen with all of these details that he's providing. That the kingdoms of this world have become at the end the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So whether you believe in a rapture, whether you believe in seven years, whether you believe the millennium is a thousand years or you don't, can we agree? on that. That's the point. And that is intended to encourage us, equip us, and energize us to conquer and endure. So now let's look at the bulls. The fourth angel poured out his bull on the sun. Listen to this. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. What's fascinating about this in the original language is the word literally means to burn up. Hmm, that's interesting. So so if we're pressing literal on this, the image that we have to have is a charred body or an ash heap. But it's interesting. It says here they curse God. I'm not a scientist or a biologist, but I think that's very difficult to do if you're a charred body or you're an ash heap. I'm not trying to make fun of this. I'm just trying to expose to you that I think the original audience was not pressing this to say, hmm, how hot is it going to get? How, what are the degree of burns? I think he's showing that God has authority over creation, that God is going to pour out judgment on the entire earth. There's going to be fierce heat. And then verse 10, this is interesting. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom. So I don't think this is a literal throne. I think this is describing the world system that I I painted for you in Revelation 13 that Satan has actually been investing in from Jesus' resurrection and will continue until Jesus' second coming because he's been cast out of heaven, as Revelation 12 said, trying to develop a system that counterfeits God's kingdom. And I think Satan is going to be mobilizing this and God's going to get him and his world system to a point where the world system is thrown into confusion. And that's what darkness means. Because, again, going back to science, if the sun is scorching but everything is also dark, that doesn't seem to fit. Can God do it? Absolutely. And like I said, maybe, maybe we will be raptured. Maybe there will be seven years of tri- tribulation. And we'll look down in the window of heaven. Y'all be like, pastor. And I'll be like, yes, I know. I get it. <laughs> but, 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 but I've just got to apply the tools of interpretation that I use from Genesis to, to Jude to Revelation. And, and this is where I'm landing. 
And I think the reason why people gnaw their tongues in anguish is the description that John uses is not because they have physical sores and they are physically in pain. I think it's what happens to our teenagers when the internet goes down. Sorry, I had to just use some levity. Or when somebody loses their job unexpectedly. Or when the stock market takes a downward spiral and you're depending on that for your retirement. I think the people of the earth that put their dependence on the earth's system, when it is put into confusion, they don't know what to do and they panic. John is reminding us who has ultimate control over the world system. Our God. Now the sixth one is odd, so let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. The sixth angel poured out his bull on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. I did a quick Google search and there's a website I came across that says the river of Euphrates is drying up and there were satellite images and their conclusion is, look, it's happening. And, and you, you might believe that and you're welcome to send me emails. I don't think that's the point of this. Why? Because look at the rest of the text. The purpose of Euphrates drying up is to what? Look at the text. To prepare the way for kings from the east. Let me ask you this. No matter what the future developments are in the world, do the kings of the east literally need the Euphrates to dry up in order to be able to cross it? The answer is no, they do not. I think John is using symbolic imagery here that requires us to have an Old Testament knowledge to communicate the literal truth that he's communicating. He goes back to the plagues of Exodus with the frogs. He shows that Satan is behind this, the mouth of the dragon. He shows the false trinity, the counterfeit trinity that I do not believe are individuals. This is just the world system that Satan is designing to counterfeit God's kingdom and King Jesus. And it says that the whole kings of the whole earth assemble for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Fascinating study I'm going through right now. Vern Poitras writes a book called Understanding Dispensationalists. It's fascinating. Really helps me better understand my growing up years and how I process things. The point that he draws attention to as you trace how the Old Testament authors looked at the great day of the Lord is that they were simply showing this is God bringing into substance all of the symbolism that he's been providing throughout redemptive history, which is the end. And so John is signaling that that time is about to come. And then he says in verse 16, and they assembled them in the place, and the Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, if you just look at this, it simply seems to say there is going to be a battle that the kings of the earth, which by the way, the ones from the east are the ones outside of the covenant community in the Old Testament. So these are people who align with the world system. And it seems like there's going to be this massive battle in a place called Armageddon, doesn't it? That's what the text says. And so let's first look at that. There is a valley in Israel called the Valley of Jezreel that's also known as the Plain of Megiddo. Here, here's a picture that now the team can put up on the screen that I took from Mount Carmel as our tour guide said, that is the Valley of Jezreel. And the plain of Megiddo, and the, the, the tour guide said, that is where the battle of Revelation is going to take place. And I'll tell you what, it sure looks like a battlefield, doesn't it? 
And if you, if you look at history, if you look at scripture, there were some very significant battles. In fact, you could write down and look at this later. Uh, where is it in my notes? Uh, it's in Kings. Yep, Kings somewhere. Uh, I'll get it to you later. It's 23. It's either 1st or 2nd Kings 23. But, but the point is, there's this battle between Judea and Judah and Egypt. Ah, there it is. I found it. 2nd Kings 23, 29 through 30. So we see in Scripture that the original audience would have been familiar with this battle that took place in this valley, this literal valley that was significant in the history of Israel. There's also a significant historical battle that's documented from archaeology and historians that took place in the 15th century B.C. between Egypt and the forces of Canaan. And then if we go to recent history, 1918, the forces of Britain... And the Ottoman Empire had a significant battle in this literal valley. Now, some of you might be familiar with a quote from Napoleon. It's a long one. Here's the gist of it. He says this, all the armies of the world can maneuver their forces in this plain. And he says, this is the greatest battlefield that the earth provides. Which, by the way, I wanted to show you that smaller picture. If you look in it, it looks like runways. The tour guide told us this is an Israeli Air Force base that the planes are underground, that they've designed technology so that it can come up, the planes can take off so that they aren't attacked from the air by the enemy. That's amazing. But then she said, and that's why this is the Battle of Armageddon. So it seems like a pretty open and shut case, except for what the text actually says. Why does John, to a group of Greek-speaking and Greek-writing audience, say in the Hebrew is called, look at what it says, Armageddon. I think he was showing us and them that he's speaking symbolically. Bear with me on this. The prefix ar, A-R, in Hebrew means mountain. Megiddo is a valley. I was there in Israel, and there were no mountains called Mount Megiddo. You can look at the map, and there's no mountain called Mount Megiddo. And I think what John was doing is using a historical reference that people in the original audience would have understood to know that when I say Megiddo, I'm talking about a major battle. But I'm throwing R in front of it to let you know, don't focus on this valley. Don't focus on how many people are there. Don't focus on what weapons are used. Don't focus on how much blood is there and does it literally go to the horse's bridle. Focus on the fact that it's going to be massive and I'm speaking symbolically. And so what is the literal truth that he's pointing to? You have to bear with me on this, but follow me. I think the very fact that he's throwing R into the place Megiddo is drawing our attention to mountain. And if you look at the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I'm going to help you out by providing some verses. The theme of mountain develops the story. Let me give you these Scriptures. The Garden of Eden in Ezekiel 28:14 is referred to as the mountain of God. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 22, verse 2, Abraham was told to go to the mountains of 
Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, as we study the rest of scripture, we realize Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem and the Temple Mount was built. That's where Jesus was crucified. When we go to Hebrews 12 and verse 22, we see that the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, is referred to as the mountain of God. And there's other mountains, aren't there, that played significance. Sinai, Sinai, Hermon. The point is, is that when God uses mountain in his big story, he's drawing our attention to two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And I think what John is doing is relying on our understanding of the whole story and drawing our attention to the fact that there will be one final conflict between the city of God and the city of man. And it could be a battle here. But I think it's more about the system of the dragon and the kingdom of God, which leads to verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, which means that everything is affected. And a loud voice came out of the temple and it said, it is done. What's fascinating about the description that follows is that if you trace this back to the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, guess what? These same descriptions are occurring. I think, again, it's that, that alignment that I showed you up on the screen. I think John is saying this is the final judgment, and he's using the earthquakes and the rumblings and the hailstones in extreme descriptions to show us this is not just the regular occurrence of the judgments on corrupted earth that we see today, tsunamis and earthquakes and fires. This is the final judgment of God. These are massive hailstones, 100, 100 pounds. Which, by the way, I didn't know that the Jews and the Greeks had pounds, but I'm just kidding. The point isn't how big are these hailstones, how many of them are there. It's John describing that the judgment here is comprehensive and God is in control. He says then in verse uh, 20 that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. I know there's debate on does God burn up the earth and then create a new one? Does he burn up the earth and then the new one grows out of it? And let's have fun debating that. But I think at the end of the day, what he's doing is he's setting up Revelation 21 and 22. That's that there will be a new creation, a new kingdom that we will enjoy for the rest of our lives. Now, how do we respond to that? How do humans respond to that? I think it's interesting. If you look at what the text says, they respond. This is the second point, second part of the outline. They respond in accusations. They respond in accusations. And that's often what happens if we start with man. If we're starting from our perspective, if we're looking at things from our logic, if we are the ones who are defining and our understanding of God is the, the measure and the standard, if we start with us, it will lead with apparent contradictions to our making accusations of God. Listen to this quote. I'll have the team put up on the screen. The apparent contradictions of God are most often the result of starting the evaluation from the perspective of man first. Now listen, God delights in us asking questions of him. That's why the book of Habakkuk exists. What's fascinating is that Habakkuk asked some pretty strong questions of God, but God never condemned him for asking questions, but he does not take kindly with our accusations. So friends, three questions to ask you as I close. Number one, which perspective do you have? What is the lens that you have bought and that you're resolved to look through? Does it start with God? 
or does it start with man? Number two, how do you respond to guilt? Because this will reveal. You can say you start with man, with God, but how do you respond when you are convicted? How do you respond when somebody speaks into your life? How do you respond when the word of God convicts something is in error in the way you're thinking or speaking or living? How do you respond? Because that will reveal if you're starting with God or you're starting with man. And then number three, how do you respond to hard things in life? I'm not saying there aren't hard things to wrestle with with God. I'm not saying we'll have it all figured out before he brings us to his eternal dwelling. But I am saying that if we start with God, even in the tension, even if with the unanswered questions, we will respond in worship. If we start with man, it won't. I love the verse that I skipped over, verse 15. Behold. I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming unexpectedly. That means we are not to look at this chronology and say, oh, it's going to be this afternoon. That's not the point. The point is focus on God, the centrality of Christ, and make sure that we stay awake, observant, and keep our identity in Christ. That's what garments on means. The world has a symbolic mark on their forehead and on their wrists so that everybody looks at them and they see, you know, we're devoted to this world system. We have the robe of Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Ah, oh, what a wowza chapter. And I know it stretched some of you and some of you are like, nope, don't agree with that. That's fine. Just defend your position with a Genesis to Revelation defense and then we can just enjoy focusing on Christ together. Maybe others of you might say, I've never surrendered to Christ, never received the completed work of Christ as the guarantee of my salvation and forgiveness. Oh, friend, today is your day of salvation. Submit to this glorious God through Christ. And for the rest of us, let's be committed to keeping watch and keeping our garments on. Father, thank you for this chapter. I pray that your Holy Spirit has guided us in the preaching, in the receiving, in the engagement. May we have the courage to take one thing that we've learned and move that into affecting our lives so that we can better reflect Christ this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.